Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Gills Talk podcast. I am your host, Kristen Kibblehouse, and today we have Gills Club scientist, Dr. Carissa Lear. It's been really great to see Carissa and be able to sit down and talk to her about her career since she has been involved with the Gills Club since its start all the way back in 2014. So as the Gills Club has grown, Carissa's career has been able to grow and thrive as well, which brought her all the way to the amazing country of Australia. So throughout our interview today, you're going to learn about her research with the sawfish and as well as the wedgefish and a few other species along the way. We get to hear about how she is collaborating with the indigenous people of Australia to aid her in her research, as well as learning about how effects of our ecosystems constantly changing the environments and the habits of the species that she does study. So let's hop right into our interview with Dr. Carissa Lear. Welcome to another episode of the Gills Talk podcast. Today we have Gills Club scientist, Dr. Carissa Lear. So welcome. So the last time you were featured on our Gills Club social media, many years ago, you were working toward your PhD. So now you've achieved it. So congratulations on that. Well, thank you. And thanks for having me. Really excited to be here. Oh, you're very welcome. So then just to kick off to refresh everyone's memories that maybe haven't been following the Gills Club for a very long time. So what is your research focused on? What do you do? Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> I, I guess I do a lot of different things, kind of involved in a lot of different projects. But I suppose broadly, you could say I use biolagging tags and telemetry and other sort of tagging and uh, conventional techniques to look at physiology and behavior of sharks and rays, and in particular, their energetics or metabolism. And what really interests me about that is looking at ways that human impacts have affected different species. So I work with a lot of different species, but the biggest group I work with is the sawfishes. And we're, I'm, I'm over in Western Australia, and uh, we're really lucky over here to have four of the world's five species, and they're all doing pretty well compared to pretty much anywhere else in the world. So some examples of my work, I guess, I have, I have a project looking at how um, freshwater sawfish respond to climate change and land use actions in rivers in Australia. Um, so that species uses rivers as their nursery, but that also makes them really vulnerable to, for example, water resources. So people taking water out of the rivers for agriculture, other things like that. I also have a project looking at how coastal developments uh, like seawalls or piers affect movement of sawfish up and down the coastline. Um, and some other projects just looking at sort of behavior of like wedge fishes and guitar fishes and other species like that. Yeah, so kind of a lot of different things, but all, all on the same theme. <laughs> well, all that sounds very exciting. Um, I think that's really cool that you have four of the five sawfish species there and that it's so interesting for you to say that they're in Australia, that they are doing much better than we see them really in any other parts of the world. So if you can maybe dive deeper into that, is there a reason why sawfish in, in Australia are doing better than, say, the sawfish here that we see in Florida? Yeah, um, there's, a, there's a couple couple of probable reasons. So the sawfish in Florida actually are, or in the US are a different species. So they're the one species we don't have in Australia is the one that's found in Florida and the US. But otherwise, we the four species we have here are kind of, um, well, one of them, the freshwater large sea sawfish is found all the way around the world in the tropics. 
and the others, green sawfish, dwarf sawfish, and narrow sawfish, are found um, just kind of in the Indo-Pacific region and then down the um, east coast of Africa as well for some of the species. But a lot of areas throughout that region, they've been overfished. Um, so there can be really high fishing pressure in a lot of places. And if you can imagine a sawfish, um, or for any, any listeners who don't know, you know, they look like a flat shark, but with a huge long nose with teeth all the way down it. So anytime there's a net or a line in the water, they get caught in it. They're just really susceptible to getting caught. So there's been high fishing pressure throughout the range, but in Australia, there's fairly low commercial fishing pressure, especially in Northwestern Australia. Mostly because it's it's just not uh, the population, human population is much lower than many other parts of the world. Uh, and so that's that's one big reason. And the other reason is that because that part of Australia isn't as developed, there's a lot of really nice, beautiful, intact coastlines. So intact mangrove coastline. And um, for example, what, when I was saying earlier, the freshwater sawfish or large sea sawfish that live in the river, the Fitzroy River in Western Australia is one of the last kind of intact dryland river systems. So that's that's the last known nursery for that species in the world. So kind of a combination of low fishing pressure and an intact coastline and intact nursery habitats. Super in- interesting. So thank you for further explaining that. So then since you said you are looking at then these coastal developments, then how it affects how they are then moving then? Are you seeing that as that development is starting to happen, since you said that they're in Australia, they really have these intact coastlines. And is there really, is, are, I should say, are you starting to see that shift yet? Or is it still like in mid-research and we're trying to figure that out yet? So we're starting to see a couple of patterns that, for example, um, sawfish don't seem to like to go past like large walls <laughs> that are you know, built off the coastline, which maybe isn't a surprise. Um, but I think I think the biggest biggest kind of discovery has been around the freshwater sawfish in that river system so I guess I'll just describe it a little bit because it's a pretty cool place to do shark and ray research because you know usually you're out in the ocean and these these animals uh, both bull sharks and freshwater sawfish are popped at the mouth of the river but then the little ones swim all the way up and they'll live in fully freshwater hundreds of kilometers from the ocean for about five to six years before they kind of are about to mature and then they swim back to the ocean. So, um, so yeah, you can be out in the bush in Australia, hundreds of kilometers from the ocean in the middle of nowhere and still be doing research on bull sharks and sawfish. <laughs> so it's a, it's a, like a pretty cool place, um, pretty cool system. But the, because it's in freshwater, you have a lot of different challenges to um, animals that are in the ocean that they would usually face. So, for example, climate change is a really pressing issue there because this river system it's what's called a dry land river, which means it has a wet season during part of the year and then a dry season during the other part of the year. It's like a monsoonal tropical climate. And so there's there's basically no rain for more than half the year <laughs> and then a whole bunch of rain for a short period. And it, and that means that in the, in the period where there's no rain, they're living in these sort of river pools, which can disconnect from the entire system. So they end up in a small pool that they can't get out of, and it gets shallower and shallower as the dry season goes and hotter and hotter. Um, so even up to about 35 degrees Celsius. So for those animals, temperature and changes in temperature from climate change are really important because they're, they're basically stuck in this really harsh environment until the wet season comes again and reconnects the river. 
And then on, on top of that, you have the potential for water abstraction or development of freshwater resources. So there's a, a lot of talk in the region of starting to develop the river to take water out to fuel agricultural production or, or other things. And that again will maybe reduce the water levels in those pools and, and can really affect a lot of the, the ways that sawfish live and bull sharks um, in that environment. Very interesting. So I'm sure then with all of this, it's obviously just not affecting sawfish and bull sharks, right? So then are you collaborating with any other researchers that are maybe looking at other species that live in the river? Or like, are you just seeing that yourself as you're doing your own research there? So we, we do quite a bit of other stuff in the river apart from the sawfish and the bull sharks. So we also sample all of the like little freshwater fish species every year, <laughs> count the crocodiles, rivers full of crocodiles. <laughs> so yeah, we, we do um, our own kind of monitoring of all of the different aquatic species that are in the river. And then there's, there's other people that um, are monitoring some of the terrestrial stuff as well, because there's a lot of, for example, wetland birds and, and things that are also can also be really affected by um, changes in climate and, and land use and stuff like that. So it is it is really important to look at it on an ecosystem level because because you're right, it's not just the sawfish and the bull sharks. Everything in that river has to deal with those really harsh circumstances during parts of the year and hugely variable habitat both during a year and between years as well. So it's um it's a very dynamic system that's yeah it's pretty pretty cool to see how life has adjusted to to being able to thrive in an environment that's just so hectic <laughs> <laughs> it's so interesting and it's so amazing to like kind of like take a step back and see how like us humans you know like we like a little thing can just like ruin our day and then we're bummed the rest of the day where then like you see these animals that have to constantly deal with whatever is being thrown at them or taken out of their environment and just how like they adjust like for me it just yeah. like it, self in perspective sometimes <laughs> uh, yeah it's amazing me I I really notice it when I'm out there doing the field work too because you know we we are just out in the middle of nowhere camping next to the river um, and then do the field work at night and and I'm just there like sweating it is so hot I'm just you know you can just be struggling to sit still and survive in your own right for a week at a time and then these these animals yeah just have to deal with the crazy changes in temperature so during the dry season, temperatures like start around probably 18 degrees Celsius and get up to 35 degrees Celsius. So it's, it's this huge change in temperature. And during the wet season, there's these giant floods with, with water, you know, kilometers and kilometers over the floodplain, rushing down the main channel, huge flows. And then in the dry season, you have these stagnant pools. So it's, it's yeah, this this you know kind of boom or bust one or the other this huge dynamic system and they they really have are thriving in it so you mentioned that you do field work then at night so for me I like get me in a cage to cage dive with with, with white sharks free dive with hammerheads and with tiger sharks I'm in but like at night with area with crocodiles like freaks me out <laughs> yeah yeah it's definitely um adds that extra level to the field work for sure. Yeah, so we're just, you know, we work with people who have been working there for ages. We also work, every time we're out there, we're with the Aboriginal rangers um, who live in the area and they, you know, they know the crocodiles as individuals in the pools really well um, and know how to, how to handle them and how to deal with them. So 
we always have somebody on croc, croc watch. Um, whenever we're doing anything in the water, there's somebody with the flashlight making sure that there's not a croc sneaking up. And, and yeah, it's just, just be a little bit more cautious about what you do for sure. But yeah, it's a, it's, it's just a really cool place to be able to work. Absolutely. It sounds like it. And then to be able to have such a great resource with the Aboriginal people as well that are there that I'm sure they, this, there's like a wealth of knowledge as well. Oh yeah. Yeah. But the, yeah, the amount that they know about the ecosystem and all of the different animals, you know, I learn new things every time I go out just chatting to them about, oh, you know, this tree, the silver leaves, that's, yes, the, they use it as bush medicine, different, just so many different things. They have different stories related to the different animals in the river as well, which also relate to aspects of their biology. So yeah, it's they're a huge wealth of knowledge and, and definitely make the whole research possible, wouldn't be possible without them. So it's amazing to be able to, to work closely with those communities out there. Mm-hmm, absolutely. So I'm going to switch gears a little bit. So we've been talking a lot about sawfish. So has this always been what you jumped into right away? Have you always been the sawfish gal? Or has there been other species that you've worked with? Has it been the bull shark? Or did you like step up to that? that (laughs) yeah um definitely not I did not start with sawfish that kind of just happened in itself I guess I kind of got my start in in sharks and rays I studied abroad when I was doing my undergrad in the Caribbean and ended up doing a research project on spotted eagle rays which I just found incredible Um, I got really interested in kind of their behavior and we were doing ID identification based on their spot patterns and and Mm -hmm. tracing their sort of movements with the tide and stuff and um, I got really interested into what they were doing when we couldn't see them so so like tracking tracking stuff so yeah I I wanted to learn more about how do you track fish especially sharks and rays these big animals that have like really complex behaviors and you can't follow them around all the time and see them so that's that's kind of how I got into the tracking technology um, and then I, I worked at Moat Marine Lab for a while after uh, I finished my undergrad with Nick Whitney. And I was doing a lot of work on like post-release mortality of large coastal sharks. So lots of tigers, sandbars, hammerheads, bulls, <laughs> and, uh, and then also um, working with metabolic rate of lemon, nurse, and blacktip sharks. So um, yeah, lots of different species in there again, <laughs> um, but no sawfish. <laughs> But yeah, so I, I worked there for a couple of years and then um, one of my collaborators on one of those projects was looking for a PhD student in Australia to come work with the sawfish in the Fitzroy River. So that's kind of how I, I ended up in Australia working with sawfish and it's just sort of snowballed from there. How was that transition going from the United States then to moving to Australia and then evidently staying there for the time being? I, I was actually talking to somebody about this recently, and it, it seems like, you know, none of it has been an actual conscious decision that I've made. It's just like one thing after another that's happened, and, it, and it's just how things have worked out. But yeah, I, I found it actually really nice to move to Australia after working in the U.S., um, so I, I ended up actually pretty burnt out um, at the end of my time working in the U.S., uh, just I think because of the pressure of working at a soft money institution and the, the expectation to work a lot. Um, and, you know, my colleagues were burnt out as well. It was just kind of this, it was a bit too much for everybody. And I, um, I moved to Australia and it, the, 
the sort of work environment here, you know, they still expect expect a lot from any academic, I suppose, but it's there's a lot more focus on work-life balance and taking weekends and taking holidays and things like that. So I actually found it a really nice transition to move to Australia because, uh, yeah, I think it, it really helps a lot more with maintaining that balance in your life. And yeah, then being able to also go from the US where most places are fairly populated um, and developed and move to Western Australia where there's so, still so much untouched wilderness area and coastline was also really amazing to be able to get to see some of these places that, that literally no, you know, people haven't walked on for hundreds of years. Yeah, so lots of good things. It's always a big transition, I guess, to move countries and start a new job and things like that. But I think it was really good for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's interesting that you mentioned the burnout culture, because I think that is something that's just not in science here within the US. I think that's really with multiple different scopes of um, whatever you do here within the US is that workout culture and you go, 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 go. So was that something hard to transition that when you came to Australia, everyone you saw, like maybe someone was telling you, yeah, like, have a great weekend, relax. But in your mind was like, but, but can I relax? Yeah, I am. Um, I remember, you know, one of my first months here, I was trying to get a grant proposal done or something and I had gotten so far and it was a Friday afternoon and I was meeting with my supervisor and I was like, okay, well, I'll have the finished version to you on Monday. And he just said, or you could have a weekend. <laughs> I was like, oh, oh, okay. <laughs> I won't work on the weekend. And I suppose, you know, it's, yeah, it's, uh, I remember that moment as kind of like, a, oh, oh, right, right. I should, you know, maintain maintain that balance but and, and it's not expected of me over there to um to yeah work all weekend and evenings and things like that so that's nice yeah it sounds it sounds nice um it's really great though I think though because it is such a prevalent component in culture here within the U.S. that I think there is a lot of businesses and companies that are both seeing that and they are taking that step back and that you don't always have to hustle <laughs> is what I like. Yeah. I feel like, um, so it is nice to see that it is, it is changing. Um, and it's nice to hear that you were able to make that change and be able to make that adjustment as well. I'm sure if people are listening, you might feel that like in your own scope and trying to feel like, how do I have that work-life balance? That is something that I still struggle to each day. Cause it's, cause it's from one, it's cause I just like, I love what I do. So for me, I'm like, Oh, like, I don't care. I'll do it. But then I will have my boss be like, why it's okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I, I still struggle with it too. And, and I don't know if it's just because oh, I really want to get this done or because like, it's that ingrained American, <laughs> Americanness that I've grown up with. <laughs> um, uh, that, but I, you know, I still occasionally do work on, on weekends or evenings or something, but it, and now at least it's only when I really want to do that. So I, I'm getting better, getting better at um, making sure to take time off. And yeah, it, it definitely is a skill because you, you get so stuck in your head, especially in this kind of work field, that it's, it's hard to, to switch off and do something else at the end of the day. Or, so yeah, definitely, definitely a skill that I keep working on, <laughs> but getting a bit better. That personal growth, one step at a time. But was that something that maybe you didn't maybe expect getting into this field? Or is that something that you knew when you started your college career into your professional career? 
know. Yeah, it's an interesting question because it definitely wasn't unexpected when it happened. I guess it, so. I yeah. So I guess I did expect it, but uh, on a subconscious level, you know, I, I didn't think oh, I'm, I'm going to get into research so that I can never have time off. <laughs> um, <laughs> I just yeah. It just again, it's kind of it just it just happens. I guess it's just what was what was going on at the time and. Um, and yeah, you know, I, I didn't even realize that it was happening so much until I moved somewhere where that's not the culture. And then looking back on it, I see how much, um, you know, more stressed and, and things I was in, in that sort of environment. Yeah, so it's it's funny how much you don't notice something like that, like you're overworking or overstressed until you get to a situation where you're not and it feels so much better. No, I, I agree. I had a friend um, recently changed career fields. She was a she was a trainer at a local aquarium where, where she was at. She worked in, in animal care and, and husbandry. And those people work their butts off that do that for aquariums and zoos. And when she switched her careers and she stepped back, she was like, wow. <laughs> yeah, it was a completely different mind, mind shift for, for her. So it is interesting to see when you do take that step back, how much it can really affect your life and with everything else around, but you have named a, an array of species that you have worked with. If it, <laughs> yeah. arts, if it is rays. And I know I asked this um, with Dr. Jody Rummer a few weeks ago and I had her on and she said, don't make me pick. Cause it's like picking my favorite child. I'm going to see if you can pick <laughs> no. child. is there like, do you love working with the sawfish? I mean, does it and other species of shark or is it one that you worked with back um, in your undergrad or your master's or, or your PhD to be like, I want to like do something with them again, or is it just, you can't make me pick? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. I do. I, I do like the, having the opportunity to work with a whole bunch of different species because I don't know, it's just, it's just more diversity. I guess you learn kind of more different things about one species versus you, you look at a different side of things and other species. So I like having that diversity, but Let's see, if I had to pick, <laughs> I think at, at the moment I've been getting more and more into research with wedgefish. Um, so that, that's been a really cool kind of new, new area. And just like the sawfish populations in Australia are doing really well and populations everywhere else in the world are doing really, really poorly. So it's nice that we kind of still have a population here that we can research actively. So yeah, I've been getting really interested in starting to do a bit more, bit more work with those guys, which has been great. But but yeah, I do also just love love the sawfish. They just are like living dinosaurs. They're so weird looking and awkward and crazy. So um, it's pretty cool to be able to to actually <laughs> experience working with them on a on a regular basis. I know a lot of sawfish researchers everywhere else in the world um, almost except for in Florida in that area, um, really rarely catch sawfish. So they spend their whole work life researching an animal that they almost never see. So again, I think it's, it's just really privileged to be able to be in Western Australia and still have all of those populations intact um, and get to see these crazy fish all the time. Yeah, and then they are. They are the such an insane ocean species. That is one of, that's like a core memory of mine when I, Gosh, 
how old are you in first grade? Like six, seven, something like that. And um, I was, I had a family vacation to the Atlantis in the Bahamas and they have sawfish there. And that was like my very first time seeing like large marine animals because they have, um, at one point they did have um, big like rays and things like that as well. And I remember like going down in the aquarium and like seeing that. And there's a photo my mom has of me and I'm like mouth open, eyes wide. Like, <laughs> what is this? And it was like, cause I'd never seen or heard of anything like that before. But yeah. So they are like these weird, like you said, like dinosaur creatures. <laughs> um, so you did mention the wedge fish. So for listeners that are maybe thinking, what the heck is a wedge fish? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Um, yeah. So, so wedge fish look a lot like sawfish, but without, the big rostrum on the end of their nose. So they're, they're, kind of, they're a species of ray, um, but they look like a flat shark and they're often kind of light gray to black in color um, with different white or black spots on them. So they, they're also like a pretty large animal so they can get to around three meters. Wow. Not as large as a six meter sawfish, but, but pretty big in its own right. Uh, yeah, so they're, yeah, they're very cool. Well, thank you for that. Um, I'm sure now people will be able to know a little bit more about that shark, or well, not shark, array, um, before <laughs> the end of the episode. So that is homework. If anyone is listening, go go Google the wedgefish after this so they can then learn more and actually see what it looks like. Wrap up our interview today. You've really dropped a bunch of knowledge already throughout this, but is there any like last advice that you would give out to anyone that's listening today? I guess I've, I've kind of really benefited in my career and ended up in my career by just going the way things take, take me and, you know, taking opportunities when they come, taking opportunities to learn from a bunch of different people or, or different species or things. And um, so, yeah, just, just like kind of grabbing, grabbing those opportunities and letting them take you to something that you're interested in and you're passionate about. Yeah, I guess that would be, be my advice. I think that's great advice to end on. So I want to say thank you so much for taking time out of your evening. I know it's late where you are in Australia right now. So thank you so much for that. Well, thanks so much for having me. Really, really happy to um, be on the, the Girls Club podcast. I kind of almost started my career with Girls Club way back years and years ago when I was at Moat in my first shark job. Um, I was leading helping to lead some of the gills club meetings in florida at mount marine lab in like 2014 or something so um i still remember that very fondly and really happy to get back involved with you guys again i love it it's full circle (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) thank you so much for listening to this episode of the gills talk podcast please remember to rate subscribe and review And as always, remember to stay curious, stay inspired, and always learn. And we'll catch you on the next episode. Bye, everyone.